They used to say if man could fly, he'd have wings. But he did fly. He discovered he had to. Do you wish that the first Apollo mission hadn't reached the moon, or that we hadn't gone on to Mars and then to the nearest star? That's like saying you wish that you still operated with scalpels and sewed your patients up with catgut, like your great-great-great-great-grandfather used to. I'm in command. I could order this. But I'm not. Because Dr. McCoy is right in pointing out the enormous danger potential in any contact with life and intelligence as fantastically advanced as this. But I must point out that the possibilities, the potential, for knowledge and advancement is equally great. Risk. Risk is our business. That's what this starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. Space. The Final Frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission, to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode four of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Network. I'm your host, podcast maker and listener, Siskoid. Today we're talking about the philosophy of Star Trek, and we're doing so with an old friend of the networks, the man behind Pulp 2 Pixels podcasts, Dr. G, man of nerdology. What's up, Doc? Live long and prosper, Trekkies. Today we'll be talking about uh, Federation values like secular humanism, scientific curiosity, uh, the Prime Directive, the famous Idic. Uh, but first, let's get to know our guest so you know where he's coming from. Everyone gets to do the same quiz, Dr. G. So what got you into Star Trek and what does it mean to you? Um, well, I, I think, uh, I think it's just about everybody. I, it's, it's TOS, the original series. Um, it played in heavy syndication. I'm, I'm a child of the late seventies. So, um, it was something that, you know, was until, well into the 80s was always in syndication somewhere so that was it and then i would have to say it was the movies that followed um i remember seeing the motion picture and i've basically seen every one of the movies in theaters when they came out in theaters and those are it i you know i really i was thinking back in this as preparation for the show and i i've only seen a few episodes of the the animated series um, which I, uh, it's on Netflix, so I'm planning to do a rewatch of it pretty soon here, but I think I, I start where every, where everyone really, I think, should with the original series. So that's where I start. As for what it means to me, what we're going to be talking about today, the philosophies of Star Trek is invariably been my, like, world philosophy and my personal philosophy throughout my life. So 
in some ways, this is, you know, been one of the guiding lights, the show of like how, how I figured out how I fit in the world and how I look at how we should, you know, sort of be in the world as humans. So, uh, the, the sort of the tenets of secular humanism that's, that's kind of enshrined in the show is pretty much mine. So this is a big deal for me. <laughs> and yeah, from that and point of view. It's also, I've been, I've gone on record, even in the larger world, because in the, uh, in the wake of the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, mm-hmm. I participated in a radio show on uh, French CBC covering like the Atlantic provinces. Uh, I went on record there saying that the humanist philosophy of Star Trek is basically my Bible. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it was what created my own moral and ethical sense. Uh, so, uh, yeah, pretty important to me too. And, uh, you know, when you suggested this topic for the show, I immediately jumped on it because, yeah, I feel the same. So a, f- a few small questions, just uh, the same questions we ask everyone. Uh, what is your favorite iteration of Star Trek? What's your favorite show? You know, it's hard to pick, but I have to say it was Deep Space Nine, um, largely because once they started having story arcing, and it was it was the first one where, I mean, aside from the McCoy-Spock friction, it was the first one where there was real like friction amongst cast members or characters. And so there, there could be better drama in essence. Um, but I liked it the most, um, especially once they did the, like the dominion war and they had that huge dominion war arc. I think that was just where some of the, the high watermarks of it, you know, I, I rewatched, uh, every now and then I'll rewatch next generation and, and I love the first season, but it's so many recycled, um, original series plots and, you know, the first season of a show is never always that strong because they're kind of finding their feet and figuring out what works. But I watched that, like, first season of um, Deep Space Nine, and I'm just like, wow, this is just, like, out of the park in the first season. You know, I just immediately was like, oh, no, this show was good. They didn't really need to tweak too much to keep it going and keep it the way it is. I mean, there, there's a, sometimes where they're kind of figuring out, well, how do we do a space exploration show where they are in a stable single location? But, you know, they handled that pretty well right in the pilot, so... Uh, it's it's probably been my favorite of the all of the series to come out, but you know, I love all the kids equally. <laughs> it's just <laughs> well, I, I I gotta be honest, I'm not as big a fan of the most recent reboots. So who is who is your favorite character? Uh it's it's either Spock or Data. Um, I I I'm very um, scientifically minded, and I, as a, I'm also a science educator too, so. I've just, I always, to, you know, to quote Matt Damon, like, I just like heroes who can, like, science the shit out of it. And, um, and I, that's always the case. But I've always liked Data in particular in that he, in his, like, striving to be more human, he, he creates this, this perfect mirror to this, like, the goods and the ills of, of humanity. And then with Spock, it's just like, it's the same thing, but with, I just felt with like more coolness. <laughs> so, so it's, it's hard for me to pick, but those are my, probably my two favorite characters in the entire series. And finally, what's your favorite alien culture in all of Trek? Um, I think that's the hard one. This is the one we I, don't really actually think about. I like the, the Klingons because when, especially in the later, the, the far later iterations, they, there was a lot more of like what I felt was like, Viking honor, like, like I've always felt like after a while, Worf was almost like Thor is for this like super idealized like Viking honor system, and there was I always felt there was a lot of like almost like samurai warrior code too, 
to them, which is something I've always, you know, a massive, like, <laughs> beardy nerd from the 90s <laughs> was something I was always totally into. So, uh, I've always liked the, 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 um, Vulcan culture, I think, is really interesting too. I think something that got really super explored in, in, uh, Enterprise. They actually explored that a lot, but I've always liked that sort of, like, kind of honorable warrior ideals at, at their core of, um, the Klingon culture. This is Dr. G, people, a Deep Space Nine fan, so the best kind of fan mm. from where I'm coming from. And oddly, it's a little bit the uh, the show that's kind of questioned the secular humanism of the other shows. The way the Federation was contrasted to, to the Bajorans, uh, and, the, you know, it was where our ideals, I'll say our as, let's say we're the Federation, uh, our ideals were most tested, where you actually had characters of faith, which uh, goes against the secular humanist uh, movement. Am I wrong? Oh, not at all. I, In fact, actually, it's one of the things I felt was, you know, of the, the I would say, hundreds of strong points that, that that particular series had is that, you know, didn't allow a 45-minute resolution to questions about spirituality. You know, they had very, I mean, Kira Nerys is a very front and center You know, she's scientifically minded and practical as a character, but is also a very deeply spiritual person as well. And and I feel like with Deep Space Nine, they very deftly got to have their cake and eat it too, in that they were able to very much play with the idea of prophecy, which is common in, in many religions, and the idea of sort of divine interventions and you know the celestial temple that is the wormhole but then at the also at the same time go the hard science fiction route of but the prophets are actually wormhole aliens that live in non-linear time so you know their ways are mysterious you know their wonders are to behold it's well it's because once again it's they're sufficiently advanced as to be indistinguishable from magic the the classic arthur c clark trope um i think something that i think is Roddenberry in the original series and throughout this entire um, iteration of this franchise, you know, they put a de definite pin into uh, big and bold in their series. But, you know, you got to see how that is. And in fact, the, you know, there's, we'll get in, as we get into the specific episodes, there's, you know, they really get to play into a lot of the stuff that is also topical in our day to day dealings with, you know, how do we interface with, you know, people's faiths and the realities of like, you know, the very technologically advanced scientific world that we live in that's driven not by their faith, but by empirical fact and evidence and things like that. So I, I think it was one of the, the stronger aspects of the show, specifically since it was a running theme. I mean, to the end, I mean, the very last episode is not, you know, not to spoiler too much for those of you who might be watching, but in the very last episode, you know, the final conflict really does boil down to, well, in, in the, the material world of, you know, the Federation and all their allies against the, the Dominion, you know, um, Cisco himself has a very sort of angel versus devil combat at the very, like, physical one-to-one -one combat at the very end of the series himself. So I thought it was very, You know, once again, it has a very important arc throughout that whole story. So that's where I feel they they did well. I feel on that, and I think they, you know, if in one way helped people who are like myself, I'm a secular humanist, and you know, not to put 
well, too fine point of it, and I'm an atheist, so I sometimes have a, not the, what I would say the most, um, magnanimous view of religion. And this is a show that made me, you know, in that way has is like, well, here's how you can interface it with definitely more respect to everyone involved. This is whatever, 400 years in the future, and there's a, an evolution of what faith means really, because for the Bajorans, who believe well they don't call them the well they call them gods but prophets uh those prophets have a a, a material existence they actually do exist they they are proven to exist uh so it's faith but it's it's also not faith and the same thing happens for the um the members of the dominion who believe the founders are gods but we do know them as physical beings real beings so there is that like the the, the star trek universe doesn't doesn't really let will superstition come in or a, a you know groundless baseless faith come into its worldview but at the same time we have a lot of characters who you mentioned the klingons uh, who have a code of honor and you know, worship up to a point that code the same thing is true of the ferengi for the rules of acquisition they have they have belief systems that are based in a philosophy a body of thought rather than necessarily uh, something that we might call a supernatural being or divine being and that's also true of secular humanism we're using that term almost interchangeably with atheism but i think there's also a, a more ethical dimension to it in the sense that what it means is I don't expect everyone to know what necessarily the words mean so it means you know secular humanism is with regard in particular to the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without belief in God and this is a straight-up definition because people have asked me through my life I'm also uh, am an atheist and I call myself a secular humanist when people ask about my belief system I have been asked by people of faith how how can you live? How can you make moral decisions without a God, without God telling you, or uh, either through religious text or through some sort of interior messaging system? Um, how can I know what is the right thing to do? How, what is morality? And I believe that morality derives from the human condition. We do the right thing not because of fear of some sort of divine damnation, uh, but because we actually thought it through and made a decision, made the right moral decision, I think that's innate to people. People are not born evil. Really, it's the the weight is on our shoulders. We haven't been told to do this. We 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 should feel an imperative to do it. Yeah, and I would add that you know we are in this too. It's um and I, it's interesting that you mention how because I'll often say atheism rather than secular humanist because I think I'm, I'm a little confrontational about it, which I probably shouldn't be. But it's more more to challenge in for me when I do it. I, I actually really do it as a challenge. But I, I do really challenge that idea because I'm someone who doesn't believe in in souls in the sense of like that sort of separate spiritual undying thing of you that for me I've always felt it's just a, a death cheat code that we do. But you know, and I've told that to people and I get the exact same response you were just talking about, which is the idea that because I don't believe in it, I must immediately be morally bankrupt. Now, I mean, it's not 100% untrue, but, <laughs> but, um, joking, joking, but get very sad when it's like, well, why is that your immediate default when, you know, I, I mentioned my belief system? It's like, especially if you know me and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm kind. I dedicate my time to others. You know, I, I, I work in education because I believe for secular humanist beliefs. I believe in the idea of that 
people should, you know, have access to knowledge and the tools to make their own decisions and, you know, should not be in fact, one of the things I always rail against within my own profession is that as teachers, many times we often have to be authoritarians and it's, that goes very much against my personal core belief systems. I'm like, you know, I'm very much a person who's like, well, people should have the tools and the knowledge to make their own decisions. And, you know, uh, it's something I, I would be adamant with my students about when the topics of this, um, since I'm a science teacher, sometimes the topics of spirituality and religion will come up. And it's like, I, I will say, look, I can tell you what the evidence is that we have gathered through the process of scientific methodology. What you do with it is up to you, but I can't tell you what to think or believe, and I'm not going to. In fact, I'll often be very adamant. I refuse to tell you what to think or do. Um, all I can tell you is what, you know, if you run the same experiment, what you will find out because other people have already run it, you know, and, and you have to, to do what you will with it. So it's an interesting place and it's kind of a hard one to be in too because, uh, from the point of view of atheism, uh, uh, here in the U.S., we're fairly reviled as a, um, I, I really hate to say a, as a religion because we're not, but as a sort of belief system, we're, you know, you know, it'll be a long time before we, I feel, we'll have an atheist president in our country. Openly. Atheist openly, yeah. 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 Because it, to use the, the religious vernacular, it is a group that has been demonized. Yes. And yet Star Trek embraced this. Uh, they, there, there is mention of God in the original series. From time to time, mm -hmm. somebody will mention God or, uh, usually McCoy. <laughs> yeah. My God. But Kirk has done so as well, I, I remember. But, mm -hmm. but really, at least, even in that series, when there is a, very often, gods on certain planets are really mm -hmm. mad computers. <laughs> God is not given a, you know, religion is not given a um, clean bill of health on most planets. We have to discuss the options and please talk freely. There are no options. The prime directive is not a matter of degrees. It is an absolute. I have a problem with that kind of rigidity. It seems callous and even a little cowardly. Yeah, doctor, uh, I'm sure that is not what the lieutenant meant, but in a situation like this, we have to be cautious. What we do today may profoundly affect the future. If we could see every possible outcome, we'd be gods, which we're not. If there is a cosmic plan, is it not the height of hubris to think that we can or should interfere? So what are you saying, that, that the Dremens are, are fated to die? I think that's an option that we should be considering. Consider it considered and rejected. If there is a cosmic plan, are we not a part of it? Our presence at this place, at this moment in time, could be a part of that fate. Right, and it could be part of that plan that we interfere. Well, that eliminates the possibility of fate. But, Commander, the Dremens are not a subject for philosophical debate. They are a people. So we make an exception in the deaths of millions. Yes. And is it the same situation if it's an epidemic and not a geological calamity? Absolutely. What about a war? If generations of conflict is killing millions, do we interfere? Oh, well, oh, we're all a little less secure in our moral certitude. And what if it's not just killings? If an oppressive government is enslaving millions? You see, the prime directive has many different functions not the least of which is to protect us, to prevent us from allowing our emotions to overwhelm our judgment. My emotions are involved. Data's friend is going to die. That means something. To Data, 
Does that invalidate the emotion? What do you think of the Prime Directive as this non-interference policy that sometimes I think maybe is at odds with the show's worldview uh, because the show doesn't believe in, in religion. Mm-hmm. It often points to false religion or falsities in religion. And yet everybody uh, in the Starfleet has to abide by this rule, which some captains break more freely than others, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, you know planets should develop by themselves, that we should not be interfering with their cultures and faith. Well, well, I, okay, to answer that, let me start with actually the actual statement of the Prime Directive. So, as it's written, based off of the interwebs, as the right of each sentient species to live in accordance with its normal cultural evolution is considered sacred. No Starfleet personnel may interfere with the normal and healthy development of an alien life and culture. So I feel in in there they've enshrined this idea of the protection of people's beliefs. Um, but I think they've also in this they've 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 recognized once again the Arthur C. Clarke um, axiom that you know a sufficiently advanced race is indistinguishable from magic, and therefore their interference with non um spacefaring or non warp capable cultures could be too damaging to their culture um and therefore that's part of why the reason of the prime directive they they in essence understand that if they were to expose themselves to a non a non advanced culture that they could be misled as you know misrepresented as gods and therefore dramatically alter and change the cultural evolution i think also in their there's the ultimate understanding that they'll eventually evolve away from their superstitious beliefs if you give them time. And I think that's the other aspect of the prime directive that's there. It's like, there's, it's sort of don't force them to come to the same beliefs that we have. Just give them time. We came to it over time through reason. As long as you give them time and room and reason, they will, the, I think the belief, dare I say the faith, that Starfleet has is that they will also reach that same conclusion in the end. I think there's a couple of places where I think they see why, you know, the prime directive, as you said, has been violated a number of times throughout the series for dramatic effect, but there's a couple of episodes. I think um, the next generation episode who watches the watchers where they are observing the, I think it's Matakins. I'm going to say this all wrong, who are there. They're kind of like Klingon ish or not sorry, Vulcan ish with the pointy ears, but they're, pre-industrial age they're definitely past their neolithic but they're definitely pre-industrial age and they become exposed to starfleet and they they start to return to um supernatural worship you know picard is incensed with the idea that you know that that's what they've done in fact to the point that he puts his life on the line to sh- and is willing to die to show them that he's not a god. You know, he's like, if only killing me will prove I'm not a god, then you must kill me because he'd rather die than know that his interference has, has, le- has interfered with their ability to naturally evolve to what he hopes will be his own idealism in the end. I think with uh, Voyager, they have a very similar thing with them. Um, there's the episode Blink of an Eye where they get trapped around a planet that's evolving at a higher speed. There's a temporal distortion around this planet so that it's almost like it's something like every 58 minutes is like a year or something on the planet. And so they're only trapped for like a few hours around the planet, you know, but 
in essence, like they've been an image in the sky of this planet from its earliest primitive age until the end of the episode where spacefarers from that planet come to Voyager as, you know, as their final sort of ascension to the ideas of shaking off their superstitious roots and seeing that it's just another group of travelers with high technology, you know, that they can understand themselves. Um, I think those are an excellent ones where they, they sort of get into why the prime directive is important, but also the idea that if you give those cultures time, they will eventually reach the same point that they are getting to. And in this discussion, mm-hmm. we sort of can, I mean, I can sort of emphasize with, people who do not like atheism. The idea that that we will eventually all come to realize that faith is basically superstition, or that's what Star Trek is is saying, mm-hmm. uh, even though many of its characters are characters of faith, mm-hmm. who is just differently manifested, is something that may seem condescending or patronizing to mm-hmm. To people who are in, in, involved uh, in their own organized religion or are people of faith, I totally recognize the the, the benefits of sense of community, and I know a lot of people mm-hmm. work through their churches and and all that. And so, people like us who do not believe, mm-hmm. we're more than just disbelievers. We're also we're also an existential threat to faith. We are thinking that perhaps, and this is where perhaps. Uh, skepticism enters the the arena because though i cannot for you know for the life of me believe in an afterlife and a divine being overruling everything i can't make myself believe it and yet i fully accept that there are things i do not understand and that i don't know how do you see it i mean you know is it yeah i don't even know how to finish my question well i think well i think part of what we're we're, we're sort of wrestling within this conversation is that, um, you know, as, as humans, we, we have an existential crisis. We face the concept of non-existence in the form of death. And if we're really deep thinkers, we have to consider the fact that there was prior non-existence prior to our birth. There's this time, there's these, these blocks of time in existence where we don't exist because we have not come into existence and therefore we, and then we don't exist because our existence has ended. And that is something that the brain can't handle. The mind like rebels against the idea of nothingness and non-existence. I mean, I, even to this day, when I think of my death, I, I still imagine my funeral. So in essence, I'm casting myself as still being in existence, even after I'm dead, you know, mentally, it's the only way I can handle the idea of non-existence. And, and so, you know, uh, it's something a friend of mine uh, who is actually one of my um, frequent co-hosts on, on the Pulp to Pixel podcast once said is like, you really can't begrudge people how they deal with that existential crisis as long as they do it, you know, honestly and, you know, without sort of detriment to others. And um, that I felt it was always sobering in, in how I dealt with people of faith. But there's there's a there's a concept of the the sort of the the grand mysterium, the idea of like the great mystery that is in and of itself terrifying because of its size and scale that we have to grapple with. And, and I feel, but with all people grapple with it and it hooks into people of faith and not of faith. We as humans have a lot of issues with understanding the universe. I mean, we don't understand deep time at all. I mean, we don't understand the, the, the massiveness of time. You know, when you tell someone that, you know, dinosaurs were, 
were 65 million years ago, but like, you know, early hominids are just a million, you know, they don't really get how much of a scale of time of difference that is between that. We, we just, we don't have because of our like, you know, at most century lifespans, it's hard to understand or the scale of the size of the universe itself. I mean, when you think of the idea of the observable universe being this sort of thing that we see as so many billion light years across, and that's just what we can see and can only physically see because light has reached us and that the universe itself is physically much, much larger than that. I mean, it boggles the mind. I mean, part of the thing that's interesting about it is if we consider the, to get back to the Star Trek ideal, you know, the whole show is predicated on the idea of human expansion and exploration of the universe. But realistically, they'll never do it. I mean, it'll, they will probably not within the life, the evolutionary and the, before the extinction of humanity, even potentially colonize the entire galaxy or see the, all of the galaxy. And they've only seen, you know, if we think about it, by the time of Deep Space Nine, we've really only looked at a quarter of our galaxy. There's still, you know, 75% of the galaxy that's unviewed and only Voyager and then the wormhole. So the Gamma and Delta quadrants. So there's even a whole extra quadrant of the galaxy that I don't think is even gotten sort of, I, I don't know if it's within canon or not, but has even been explored um, within the, the span of the series, which within the series itself, we're already looking at a two, what, two, almost two, three hundred years of, of timeline from like Enterprise to, to Voyager. Yeah, just about. Yeah, like, so yeah, I know it's like the beta, even alpha and beta quadrants, which are, <laughs> you know, right there. Is like Earth is right on the on the frontier. It's right on the border between those two quadrants, more or less. And so is Vulcan, and so is uh, the Klingon homeworld, and they're all very, very close together. And that's why they interact early on. Like beta quadrants is like the Klingon Empire and the, the Romulans. Maybe it's it's that kind of. But we mm-hmm. have not visited that that much, and even the Alpha right. Quadrant, we haven't gotten to the far reaches of it. So there's yeah, and the center of the galaxy, uh, you know, the Inter- Enterprise D visits it once through some fluke, and then you know it's and that's this is just one galaxy among billions of galaxies. So yes, it, there's a pointlessness to <laughs> to it <laughs> as there is to every mm-hmm. endeavor. And I think the I guess the way the reason I'm struggling mm-hmm. uh, right now is because. I certainly don't want to offend any of our listeners. What I usually want people of faith to understand is that my own belief system, and I'm really wondering how they perceive Star Trek, because obviously our listeners are Star Trek fans, (laughs) probably, to listen to this, but how they react to that religious neutrality that is in every iteration of the show. But what I'd really like them to get, that this is a belief system that is not a morally exclusive to their own. It's just how you, it's exactly what you were saying. It's how do we interpret that element, that existential thing that yeah. is the void of self and the, uh, the, you know, the large scale. I usually talk about humanity's divine spark. And a lot of people are, I find, extremely cynical about humanity. Yeah. Uh, and we are capable of terrible things. But we also are uh, capable of great works of art and and compassion. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of good in humanity. And, and I think Star Trek shows us that. I mean, it's the ultimate evolution of that ethos uh, is the the utopia that the Federation creates, even if it's not a perfect utopia. 
or else there would be no drama. It is, after all, shows and movies. There must be drama, and so there are failings in that system. But what we're seeing is a humanity that is freed from Earth and now able to, each person is supposed to be able to find their joy in the fire and water network uh, vernacular. <laughs> uh, everyone is supposed to be able to find self-fulfillment regardless of class, race, gender, um, financial means. Right. Everyone can follow their own uh, destiny. The impetus to create and to do things is not does not come from a an exterior divine source, but from within. It gives you your the responsibility of you're in charge of your destiny. Yeah, I have to say, um, you know, often when this question comes up, I, and, and when we talk about the sort of the cynicism, is is like I'm I'm someone who's very cynical. I try not to say you cynical. I just say like very like you know sort of dispassionately realistic about it. You know, I, you know, if you ask like the purpose of the universe for me, and I put my physics you know hat on my physics teacher hat on and i'm just like well you're a heat exchange engine you're just exchanging heat with the universe to to drive entropy <laughs> the second law of thermodynamics <laughs> and it's and it's you know it's cold and dispassionate but what i always say is like the most freeing thing is the universe without meaning because therefore you write the meaning of the universe for yourself and in in that you are given what I feel, because if there's one thing I put my nickel down on of the thing I have, like, I hold to have faith in is the idea of free will. If I, if we're looking at completely materialistic and dispassionate, it's like, there's still this amazing aspect that we are a conglomeration of atoms in a soup of heat and atoms that has learned to gaze as its own navel and ponder its own existence. I mean, we're a group of atoms that has the ability to even ponder at all which in and of itself I find to be so amazing and so fascinating that I need no other supernatural explanation to it. It's like, it's already pretty amazing to begin with. And so, and, and from there it's like, and it's unbound by any rules of any sort of like powerful supernatural being. And therefore it is, you know, if you want the world to be moral, you, you make it moral by your actions and you make it moral by your ideals. If you want to the greater good, you know, if you want there to even be a concept of good and evil, it is, it is the choices that you make and, and what you, how you define it and how you, you make your choices based off of that concept of good and evil that, you know, I feel it's everybody's responsibility to craft. And yes, we can take examples from other people and we can take examples. I mean, I'd say you and I both take examples from Star Trek itself, as when we were young and couldn't, you know, we're asking these questions ourselves, there was always already a primer there in the sense of there's this show with this mythology of, of, of belief system about the universe that is, you know, about this idea of the future will be better if we work together and we strive for the greater good and the common good. And, you know, in first contact, they get in the movie first contact, they get into the idea that one of the things we can strive for is not to be concerned with the acquisition of material wealth, which has its, its roots in greed, but also has its deeper roots in, in scarcity and need, you know, basic human needs. And once we can fulfill those with our, our knowledge and technology, we're free to now pursue other aspects of it. You know, it, it's given us this guidepost to our multicultural future. I mean, with, you know, from the very first interracial kiss with, um, you know, Uhura and, and Kirk to, 
you know, so many questions of racism, of how do we deal with it and how, why it's not right and, and slavery and gender identity. An example of with racism, I just this week was watching Let That Be Your, Your Battlefield, your final battlefield, the one with the two last remaining survivors of Sharon, where they have the, the, the white on one side, black on the other side pigmentation. And it's, I mean, they, they do not like shy away from putting a big pin on the idea of racism and how it's bad. And, you know, and the moral of the story at the end is that these two sides from the, the oppressed ideologue to the oppressing, you know, demagogue who both are violent and both are taking their, their philosophies to the worst extremes. We see where that led. I mean, we see the fact that like, they are the last of their race and they have literally because while they were chasing each other through the stars, the rest of their race just slaughtered each other to the, to the last person. And, you know, Kirk makes a very impassioned plea that there's like, you have nothing left to fight for. You are the last of your kind. You know, you're all that's left. Don't throw it away. And they can't because all they have left is their hate. And so they run off of it. So, you know, we get that or, um, the next generation episode about, the outcast, which I think was probably one of the strongest and I mean cripplingly sad ending episodes where where they're the the genderless race uh, what was it Riker falls for one of their members because she actually identifies as as female and has female tendencies oh, it's a female actress too so and so but they you know they used a you know science fiction metaphor, but they were very much saying about you know gender equality and gender identity and pretty much like um, gay, lesbian, LGBT rights and there. And, and it's very sad too because she, it ends with that character basically being subjected to, uh, conversion therapy, you know, which is, you know, basically torture until they don't, they don't believe what, you know, they don't act the way they're naturally inclined to act. I think on things like slavery, we get like, uh, which I, I would have to say is one of my ultimate favorites of the entire series, uh, uh Measure of the Man, where data, is put on trial to assess whether he's even a sentient being or not. And I feel in that one, there's some, I mean, for a very early episode too, in the series where they, you know, they were still kind of finding their feet. It's just, it just got to it so well. Cause you know, they really put a point on it is that like, if they can say he's not a real person and they can replicate him, then they've just created a slave class of thinking beings that they can send to do whatever dirty work they want. Single data and forgive me commander is a curiosity a wonder even but thousands of data isn't that becoming a race and won't we be judged by how we treat that race now tell me commander what is data i don't understand what is he a machine is he are you sure yes you see, he's met two of your three criteria for sentience, so what if he meets the third? Consciousness in even the smallest degree. What is he then? I don't know. Do you? Do you? Yeah, so, I mean, there's there's tons more I want to talk about, but those, I think those are some of the things that come up in that sort of why it's important, why how it's affected and can inform morality as well. But I think the other thing I like about it is, like, unlike many religions, which in many ways, you know even in their most nicest sense, still demand your adherence. Star Trek is very much in the sense of, okay, here are these ideals. Take it or leave it because you've got the remote control and you can change the channel, whatever you feel like. So I think, I think it, it opens it up to a little more 
when you're ready, come to it sort of situation. There are things before us, and there will be things after us. And so obviously, mm-hmm. we're not born with a certain ethic, necessarily, but we're informed by our environment. So it's the difference between being born into a faith and being converted. And I mm-hmm. think when you're being converted, it's listening to these ideas and, um, you know, wh- whatever Star Trek is presenting as a morality and then saying, yes, yes, this makes sense to me. This is, yes, this is right. And this can happen in faith. But, but for me, who, uh, obviously I was, I'm a French Canadian. So that means I was born Catholic, you know, baptized Catholic and went through all the sacraments in grade school. But. Uh, Star Trek and to some extent comic books and you know the those little plays mm-hmm. of moral plays really sometimes very you know four color battles between good and evil those are the things that really informed what I would call my my ethics and it's largely watching or reading these things and going yes I, I completely agree and you're relating yourself and your own evolving moral code with a code that's already been thought of and being presented by, in this case, Roddenberry and his writers mm-hmm. uh, and the ones that came after. It's a story of conversion because unless your parents are raising you in in a Starfleet ethic, and like in a Federation ethic, which would be very strange, but I'm sure it happens, it's something that you have to think of for yourself. And it's not uh, you're not receiving it as an absolute. It's yeah. something that, uh, you know, it's just a TV show. Are you going to relate to it or are you not? And are you going to ex- accept what it tells you or not? And are you going to think of these, thing- uh, these things for yourself and then adapt it to your own life? Because uh, obviously the realities of mm-hmm. living on a spaceship in the 24th century are not the same as, you know, everyday life in a consumer society. And, you know, we're living in a, a very yeah. different world from Star Trek. Well, yeah, I mean, because Star Trek has the luxury of being you know, they live in a world that's largely post-scarcity. You know, they have the ability to convert matter to energy through the, the teleporter, the transporters and then the, the replicators. So it's like, eh, and, and they have matter to energy conversion technology from in dilithium and antimatter. So it's like, yeah, you live in a post-scarcity. I mean, want is not a large problem for you, but you know, it's, you, it's funny you should mention it's like, so I was raised entirely non-religious. Well, my family is culturally Indian. Um, my dad was never, he was like, we're not going to do temple. We're not doing, you know, we don't follow any religions or anything like that. So it was, and it was never that he made a very hard line. Like, um, I think as I grew up, you know, he and I, he was, he was a lot more vocal about how he was his distaste with religion. But you know, one of the things he, he grew up in had to go to like uh, British military schools and stuff were run by nuns. And he, he always said that, you know, they knew how to teach a discipline there. So he always respected that aspect of it. But I never grew up with a religion of, of any type. So it was, you know, I mean, finding Star Trek in many ways is something I had to do because I didn't have any other sort of guidance as I was sort of finding my way. And so I think in some ways I got, I did get sort of raised on the, the Star Trek ideal and the Starfleet ideal. <laughs> of the future there's that idea of the better future and i think that's the other aspect of star trek that is one of the things that is very important because if you know if you look at a lot of other science fiction about the future it always seems to like skew towards the dystopia you know because it's always about how bad the future is going to be um which is usually an indictment of more how we are now and and one of the things i've really loved about this show is that 
they don't deny how bad we are. And I, I think Encounter at Farpoint gets it best. You know, Q puts us, the human race, on trial. And, and I love that, you know, that's the bookend of Next Generation as well with all good things is that, you know, the trial never ended. You know, and the trial never does end. And that's the bigger idea is that, you know, just because Starfleet has reached this point of what I would say is a great deal of like secular enlightenment about the universe, they're not done. They still have ways to go, but they have made the steps in the right direction. And, and Kurt, and Picard himself, you know, when he calls for them to be tested, you know, as a way, instead of being roundly condemned, he's like, yes, we are bloody and we are savage and have been and in some ways are still are, but we also are explorers and dreamers and artists and believe in goodness and believe in science and knowledge and, you know, being skeptical of supernatural claims, you know, when there is logic and reason that can that can pull them apart. Let us fall, let us falter, but don't let us don't condemn us roundly because we're still evolving to be better and greater and and that i think is an ideal that i've loved the most i mean you know dystopian futures are are fun in the sense of you know as we said drama you know there's nothing like conflict to to drive drama you can't have drama without bad guys basically or good guys or or different sides that can fight each other um, something that, you know, Star Trek has to do as well to drive drama as well. I mean, it would be really boring show if they, they were just really nice to everybody and nothing really bad ever happened. But I like the idea that they've definitely got the point that it'll be better. I mean, first contact once again gets into it. You know, Troy, when she's talking to Zephyr and Cockrum, you know, really points it out that it's like, you know, once you meet the Vulcans, you know, war and, and disease and famine will be gone. And there he, she said like 50 years and 50 years after meeting another species and knowing that you're not alone in the universe and that there's a bigger universe out there worth exploring and worth being part of all of the things that have plagued mankind since, you know, we were cavemen to today will disappear as we come together, not as countries and religions, but as the human species going through the human experience together. So I think that's a, an amazing portion of what it what it provides is you know because i mean religion provides hope in that sense and while that possible future of us being better and greater is not guaranteed it's still there if we're willing to strive for it and and so it's it's in our hands the claim that star trek is making and the way it's selling its uh secular humanist ideals is that it makes a promise for the future a future we're not going to see yes for the person who does not or cannot believe in an afterlife, or this is the promise of what happens to your kids and your kids' kids, and to our responsibility and duty to our species, to our cultures. And I think there's, if I don't believe in an afterlife, then what am I doing here? And what is my contribution? And if I want to have a positive contribution, then what is it for? What is it in aid of? And it's for that eventual future. It's to add a building block to the edification of the human race and to have had a positive impact on the people around me and uh, my culture is enough of a drive, for me at least, or else I would just do nothing. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Because it's ultimately, and I think this is a message of Star Trek, is that the human idea is worth it. And that's ultimately as, as you know, and they, they don't, they don't shy away from the fact that we're bloody and barbarous. Um, I think one of my favorite 
episode. It's not the best episode, but I like the idea that it is um Wrecking Room for Methuselah from the original series, where they meet pretty much a an immortal caveman in in ways. In fact, actually, I, to to get to our the comic roots of our podcast, um, there was the uh, IDW Star Trek uh, Legion crossover. Where the, um, they basically made that character into Vandal Savage yeah. in the mirror universe, but that's a huge digression, but, but they, um, but the idea of like, you know, this is someone who has the long view of humanity and just sees them, has divorced himself from and lives on another planet and it just sees them as these sort of like, you know, it's just, he's seen and taken part in the bloody history of humanity for centuries, if not millennia. And has like washed his hands of it and then comes across members of Starfleet again who are embodied in the triumvirate of Kirk, Spock and McCoy, which I, I think are, are very much the, the id, ego and super ego of the Star Trek ideal in those three. You know, they don't deny it, but they're also like, you know, we're also here exploring and expanding and, and doing more and being more and trying our best. You know, and ultimately that's all that anyone can really ask of anyone is like, you know, while we won't, we can ask other people to succeed and we want to succeed, we can really only ask someone to try their best and be their best and try to be better. And that's, that's about it. I mean, it's this idea of self-improvement and, and by self-improvement, improvement of the whole and the group. You know, and if that, we were already perfect in in that future, if everyone mm-hmm. was perfect already and already had, uh, you know, a, a perfect moral center, uh, not only would that not be drama, it wouldn't be something to celebrate. Because the the whole idea is that moral beings are struggling with moral dilemmas mm-hmm. in space. But the, <laughs> the idea is that you have to work on yourself at all times. You can't just sit back and say, well, we it's all figured out. Because it isn't, and that's not what being a human being is. And if every decision is black and white and easy to make, then there really is no reason for morality. Yeah. Just like, I'm going to take a drink of water right now. That is mm-hmm. not a moral action. So I don't even think about it. I'm just doing it naturally, just like breathing. When our, our ethics and our moral sense is confronted with an actual dilemma, what are we going to do? And of course, that's a necessary ingredient of drama, but it's also part of that secular humanism and that, you know, we mentioned the idea of scientific curiosity being all wrapped up in this and the reason why we go to the stars on the show, how our society evolves, is very much tied into that idea. And I love how Star Trek's greatest heroes are not just men of science. They are. They're explorers and men of science, but they're also very often Renaissance men and women who enjoy the arts, are interested in learning instruments. They're well-read. There's a curiosity that's also about culture and art and sociology, you know, are part of that baggage. Because that, that, that's my, you know, you're a man, you're a, you teach science and math. I, yeah, I teach, I teach physics and chemistry mainly, yeah. See, so you're a man of science, but I'm a man of letters. Let's call it that. I come at it from the arts point of view, and it's the same idea. It's the same. What drives me is curiosity. That same curiosity drives all the characters in Star Trek, whether it is an exploration of science or an exploration of, of meaning, of philosophy, of you know things that we, we might find in literature and art. So both sides are actually catered to on the show. Oh, yeah. And and for once again, this gets back to how it like affects you know, sort of the ethos of my personal life. It's like, you know, so like I mentioned, I, I teach physics and chemistry. So I teach fairly, you know, f- highly empirical, highly mathematical 
sciences on a daily basis, but um, I have a degree in psychology and I aspire to be a writer and I am an artist too. I draw and I, I do digital art. And, and it, there's something that I actually, um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson mentions, and, and it's something I've found to be very true in my life is that, and in my interactions with other people is that, you know, you'll, you'll be at a party or you'll be at something where a social gathering where you meet other people and talk about how I, I teach science and people will always talk about how they love science, but oh man, they didn't get it. And it's so hard. And, you know, because, you know, like they were an English major or they were in the arts or, you know, the softer sciences and stuff like that. And I always feel like that's such a, you know, they're selling things short because it's at the same time, it's like, well, I have a lot of training in the math and the sciences, but that hasn't stopped me also from, you know, being able to speak eloquently, I feel, on like art and literature. And, you know, I love to talk about like the art of film and like the nuances of Shakespeare and, you know, and it's and I feel that that sort of separation is always a bit of a problem because it's you know you, you you talk to a lot of people who are in the sciences and they're they're also you'll find very fairly well read and and articulate about uh, about what you know the people in English and and those other subjects are, but it's not doesn't go the other opposite direction, which I always feel is a bit of a shame because it's like you can be good at those both. You don't have to be experts at both. I'm not an expert at the arts and stuff, but you know. I feel I can talk intelligently enough about it on a, on a daily basis. So, and I, and I feel that's a part of that ideal of Star Trek. There's very much, I mean, even in the first like two, like second or third episode, like we see that their highly logical and dispassionate, um, Spock plays the lute, the Vulcan lute beautifully with Uhura singing to it. And, you know, there's always been that sense that there are the two things. I mean, Data paints and plays the violin and, and, you know, enjoys dressing up like Sherlock Holmes and, you know, Riker plays the trombone and Picard learns the flute in um, probably one of the great episodes of that series, Inner Light. You know, so I feel that they've they've also never shied away from the idea of while they're, you know, they they live in this world of and sometimes scientific gobbledygook <laughs> and techno babble, but they also play very heavily to the idea of of literature and being very important and art being very important as well. So once again, another place where, you know, I can't do nothing but praise Star Trek and the Star Trek ideals and philosophies as well. And it's an idea that it's like a personal or an individual representation of that other concept I wanted to talk about, which is uh, idic. The glory of creation is in its infinite diversity. And the ways our differences combine to create meaning and beauty. The whole idea of infinite diversity and infinite combinations, which has an interesting origin, really, because it's one of the things that most speaks to me about the uh, the Star Trek philosophy. But it started out as a marketing scheme, kind of interesting, <laughs> because they uh, and during the third season of the original series, Roddenberry had his own little company that made you know uh, Star Trek memorabilia, and they wanted to sell new insignia. You, know, you had the Starfleet insignia, whatever. He wanted to to sell a new one, and they created the Idic medallion for Spock to wear and to talk about. 
and the actor didn't want to have anything to do with it. They sort of offered it to, to Shatner. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. They wrote a long scene to explain it after Nimoy was convinced to do it, and then the actors wanted to cut down that scene and did. So it started out as kind of a scheme, except that the idea of infinite diversity and infinite combinations was already part of Star Trek. You know, let's just give that wrinkle to the Vulcans, uh, and I know Enterprise did quite a bit with it, but it was sort of an afterthought, uh, in a sense, but became, you know, one of the more compelling values for me, because it's, it's about not that we're stronger together. We're not stronger together in spite of our differences, but because of our differences. You know, the racial and cultural diversity of every Star Trek cast isn't a call for tolerance, but for embracing those differences. Like everyone is expected to to contribute, which is another of the Star Trek values. But that whole idea of that we should cultivate differences between people as opposed to all being the same cookie cutter. There, there's no supremacy of any race or any species in Star Trek or any gender. Everyone can achieve whatever they put their minds to, to the best of their ability. And that the fact that we are different and we come from different backgrounds, that we have dif- you know differences, is actually going to help us out in space, you know, overcome problems. And I think that's the whole point of Spock on the bridge is not so much that he's, you know, kind of a superhuman figure that can solve a lot of problems, but that, you know, he suffers from a lot of racism on, on the, in the early series. Oh, yeah. There are ver- yeah. Yeah, there are very often characters that don't like Vulcans there, and Enterprise went on to, to kind of explain the background of that and why humans, or some humans, still mistrusted Vulcans. And, of course, he's off-putting because he has a different worldview and a different way of, of interacting with people. But, you know, he's also that character that solves a lot of problems. So he's the... If he weren't there, the crew of the Enterprise would not survive many episodes. And if, <laughs> yeah, true and if he wasn't surrounded by humans, he would not survive many of the episodes. Uh, because passion and emotion very often are a part of the solution that he cannot bring himself to, to bring to bear. So the fact Instinct, that we're all... Instinct, I believe, in particular. I think yeah. Kirk always really puts a pin throughout on the ability of like humans to go by gut instinct and and rightly go by gut instinct oftentimes instead of being like well you know you just made a guess <laughs> you know he he gets into that a lot no you're you're very much hitting on a lot of the very important points i think um uh balance of terror gets into that a lot where there's that openly racist bridge crew member and um, and Kirk just flat out is like, yeah, you're in trouble if you say that again. <laughs> you know, like, you can't do that on there. But, you know, it's interesting you were pointing out about this idea of, like, embracing differences and, and cultural. I think one of the things that's very interesting about it, uh, the series is that they themselves are also even critical of that idea themselves. I think in Undiscovered Country, when they're having that dinner with the Klingons on the Enterprise and they all get too drunk on Romulan Ale, um, <laughs> It's so awkward, so awkward. You know, the Klingon captain points out that, you know, when they talk about the ideals of Starfleet as like the sort of inalienable human rights of all species, you know, he's like, look at you, you're even, you're racist in the sense that you have, you you believe that only rights are human rights and that they should be applied to everybody, you know? And while I, I you know, it's coming from sort of like murderous war mongering Klingons at that point in the series, you know, it's still, I think, a, an interesting point. I think also the Maquis, the, the specifically the the guy who was the, the Maquis mole later, I forget his name. Michael Eddington. Eddington, yes, who I didn't realize until much later was, oh, wait, you're in Crawl. <laughs> you're the lead actor in Crawl. You had more hair then. <laughs> um, but 
you know, he even points out that, like, in Starfleet's sort of, like, embracement and almost forcing of diversity, they, in in some ways, are almost Borg-like in their absorption of culture into this sort of homogenizing state. And so I feel that they act in, in some cases while they, they see the the greater good and value of the Star Trek ideal and the Starfleet um, philosophy, they also see it's – they question its potentially inherent dangers as well too which you know once again i think is part of that skeptical idealism of star trek as well is that never assume you're always right always check always be vigilant always be attempting to be better yeah and again don't sit on your laurels and think you've got it all figured out because even even a culture that is supposed to be embracing uh, the idic ethos the Vulcans themselves, right? The the whole the symbol is like a circle with another circle inside it, and then a, a triangle kind of pointing to that inner circle. And it's supposed to be, according to um, an, an Enterprise episode, it's supposed to represent Serac's enlightenment on top of Mount Salea. One of my favorite episodes on the whole show doesn't outright mention the Idic, but does show it as a symbol. And it's Deep Space Nine's Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. The baseball oh, episode. Yeah. Yeah, I love that show. And it's a bunch of Vulcans, superhuman Vulcans, superhuman, I mean, whatever, super beings. It's a Vulcan baseball team goes up against not the best of Deep Space Nine. It's, you know, Cisco and Jake know how to play and then all the others. And it's even ridiculous, you know, who, who gets to play in the game. It was their version of Aliyah Vero. Exactly. And the logicians, which is the Vulcan baseball team, on their caps, the symbol is the idic. That's their team symbol. So you'd think they would embrace the idea of infinite diversity and infinite combinations, except they all look the same. They're all Vulcans. They're all playing the same. They're playing by the the exact rule book and the exact strategy that they should be playing at. And when they and they don't lose, <laughs> they really don't lose. But the the non-Vulcans' victory is scoring a single point right. in that game. And the person who scores the point is the least of them is Rom, the Ferengi, who has no motor control whatsoever no coordination but he accidentally bunts and somehow they score a point and immediately celebrate because they scored a point against the super strong super fast super precise people and of course the the other team so like that vulcan team is derisive of the d space nine niners and it's like they don't get it it's like they've lived with that philosophy all their lives they're supposed to believe in idic and they really don't because they are the manifestation of everything that that goes against and they don't understand the value of the niners team which is made up of all disparate species people and yet that team is the team that through a single point, I, I admit, they don't win the game, uh, but they win by their own standards so to speak. And the reason they do win is because they each had a different, they came from a different place, had a different take on it, and it's really the ridiculousness of Rom that makes them score the point. He's sort of like the chaotic element, the wild card, that the Vulcans don't have because they're not embracing that diversity. You know, I it, it's, it's such a great example, and, and I love when things are like in microcosm and yet large. Part of that, too, is the idea that, you know, in the rigidity of, of their belief system, and it's the part of the turn of the episode is when Cisco realizes that in the Holosuite, they have no people cheering them, and they have no, and they've forgotten the fact that, that this competition that they had built into this sort of like, you know, and let's face it, it was like, it was, this was a, this was about Cisco's pride and him getting hoisted on his own petard. And once he realizes it, they win because they remembered it's a game, too. And they're just there to have fun, win or lose. And I think that's an important aspect of it as well, is that 
you know, in this high-minded ideals of of Starfleet that shouldn't lose sight to have fun as well. I think is is another great message that came out of that one as well. But yeah, I you're, that's such a great episode. I had even forgotten about it. And I was like, oh yeah, no, that that's another great one, and with such low stakes too, which is it's nice to see that that you can still do that exact same very important message without it necessarily having to be and in 40 minutes this alien race will be dead if we don't make the right decision or you know the the ship will be destroyed or the 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 station will fall it's like yeah sometimes it's just like or you'll you know you'll lose some bragging rights amongst your other <laughs> other captains but it's still the ideals are still there yeah in the middle of the dominion war too so it's, yeah. it's supposed to be like a a breather but at the same time and you can understand why cisco is so intense about this he had that rivalry with that you know that other captain all that time but you know it's a very tense time and even in an episode where he's supposed to relax he really can't you know so it's it's about all of that playing at the same time to, to come back to the the original point inside a single character we are also promoting idic because the like a picard uh, is supposed to have a scientific background as well as a an arts background all the characters have uh, many many interests and so become more complete people so you become a better person by developing these diff- different facets of yourself which at the same time are opening you up to the points of view and relationships with very different people from yourself. The more you expand your own horizons and not become a specialist, but become sort of a generalist, the more you're opening up to different kinds of people and, you know, growing that circle of diversity around yourself and making yourself stronger from within and from without. And I think the these are not things that are necessarily always uh, explicitly said on the show, and but it's there and and it's, it informs who we are. And if I go back to my own background, when I you know I often mention my um, you know my interest in improv, and we do build teams. That's how it works. It's it's about teamwork, and you do not make a team. I mean, you can, but it will be a failing team. But you can't. You don't make a team with all the same strengths. I believe in a team that has equal parts, men and women, people from different backgrounds, people from different areas, people from different. Uh, you know. The more diversity you can put in your team, different talents, more styles that you can have on the on the same team, the more that will be a winning team because everybody learns from everybody else. Everybody is forced to develop facets of themselves that they would not have developed as specialists or if they were in a homogenous group. And not only that, but then you can, when you're confronting other teams, it's competitive arts medium, you can bring to bear different things you know, that will match better with different other teams that you might meet. So the idea of diversity and making yourself stronger through diversity is ingrained in all these other aspects of my life as well. So like you, Star Trek really informed who I am today. And from an early age, but through, and sometimes even invisibly, you don't realize that's why you're doing it. But then when you go back to Star Trek, you go, yeah, that that is where I picked up those values or where those values were reinforced. Oh, and, and I think for me personally, it's like, just prepping for this episode is, has reinforced that that experience a great deal, you know, as as I prep for this, because I realized, you know, as I was really getting into what humanism is and what secular humanism means, and I was like, yeah, so where did I come to my realizations of this? And I, and for me, I think it was also the study and understanding of science that really led me to it as well. But I wouldn't have gotten there if I didn't, you know, idolize characters like like Spock or Data or 
or the science officers. I mean, I've, it's the science officers that have always really been some of my favorite characters throughout the Star Trek universe because it's, you know, they're the ones who, you know, they don't take it on faith. They, they solve the problem and they, they really, whether even to challenge themselves, even if it requires them to change the way they look at, at the world, they have to. So, and you know, I think that's the other aspect of it too, the skeptical future of it. And not in the skeptical in the sense that it's so negative. Because one of the things I think that I love about the show is that in any other television show, when you have a character who is a skeptic, they're often cranks or they're wrong because the show will show that there actually is some sort of super natural intercession in there. It's another thing that I've always disliked about it is that for those of us who kind of sort of like call to the carpet claims, supernatural claims made by things like religions or new agey beliefs or things like that, you know, we're often demonized for our skepticism, but it's not helped that by and large in popular culture, especially if you're watching something that's a, a science fiction or fantasy um, setting, the skeptic is generally wrong because there is some sort of supernatural event or, or occurrence. But in Star Trek, that's not the case. I mean, they have on many, many occasions, you know, they've challenged godlike beings and shown them not to be godlike beings, but just powerful advanced beings. Um, children of Apollo. Why, why, why does God need a spaceship? Final Frontier, they flat out, and it, and it's a, it's an Abrahamic God with like big old beard and, and, you know, white guy with big old beard in, in a glowing, you know, for all intents and purposes, a burning bush on this planet. And Kirk just like, and you know, his delivery of the line is fairly comedic. I felt, but like in the, how he kind of says it, but he's just straight, straight out. Like, um, why does God need a star trip? And I, I, to this day still remember that, that scene the most vividly. I mean, there's like of what I was, I would say is largely not a great movie. <laughs> from the series, um, the, the, um, Final Frontier, you know, there's some really great moments. Um, that is one that always stuck out to me. The fact that, like, you know, he questioned him and, you know, when, when God's like, who is this creature? He's like, don't you know? Aren't you God? <laughs> you know, shouldn't you know? Why, sh- why do I have to explain who I am? You're supposed to be all knowing and all seeing. Like, you clearly aren't. And it really calls to the fact that this is just a, some sort of trapped powerful being that needs to escape and is and is fooling people into it but is a being understood but and bound by the rules of the universe still not one that can just flout the universe as it feels and even with the q who in many ways do show godlike abilities i i don't think well no they seem to be able to create life out of nothing so you know they have the powers of gods in all of the functional ways that we would explain it, but, you know, they show clearly are also flawed beings themselves. You know, I mean, Q is quite possibly one of the funniest and great characters of this to come out of that series, but, but you know, is still, you know, he's kind of a jerk <laughs> the whole time about it, too. So I think that skeptical ideal is also very important. Um, you know, it, it, as I was doing research for this, um, I'd never realized, I'd never noticed, but, you know, the Starfleet Academy motto is ex astris scientia, which is, you know, from the stars knowledge. And so that's another big idea of the idea of the humanist idea is the idea of exploration and not exploration for exploitation, which is, you know, as we, as we romantically look at the explorers of the past, we, we sort of glaze over the fact that there's usually largely a more, you know, a financial exploitation uh, motivation here, 
that explorer ideal becomes more pure in the in the Star Trek universe because once again they're they're a post scarcity society. So it's not about the acquisition necessarily of a financial need or a but rather just for the pure building of the human experience to know more and to be more and to strive to be to do more. Captain's log supplemental. Now, if you ever do a podcast with Dr. G, you'll find out he likes to talk and I like to listen. So after we finished taping, I didn't really stop the recording and we talked about all sorts of things, politics, the weather, role-playing games, whatever. And a couple of points came back up about Star Trek and about the philosophy of Star Trek. So I thought it'd be nice to just slide them in here, only slightly out of context. If there is an enemy, the real enemy isn't isn't faith. The the real enemy is thoughtlessness. Yeah, it's it's ignorance and, and tolerance is the enemy yeah. of. Um, it was the episode. Oh, you know, it's the one I didn't get a chance to mention it. In the hands of the prophets, where the Bajorans basically start. It, and for me, it was a very personal. I, you know, I totally wish I'd put this in, but it was very personal. Well, we're still taping. So. Oh, you know, what, you know. What? Okay, so uh, there, it's the episode of Deep Space Nine in the hands of the prophets where Kaiwin starts stirring up religious antipathy against against Keiko because she's teaching Starfleet secular, secularism to Bajoran children, and so it's pretty much what we deal with and 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 a lot of educators have to deal with especially in the sciences of the idea of like creationism being forced into the science classroom and theology being like you know with that terrible false equivalencies of like oh we need equal time it's like you get equal time it's called a social studies class you know where you talk about world religion that's your equal time you don't get equal time in my science classroom because you don't have any empirical evidence when and you know for me I'm always like well, when the holy scriptures have can have an accurate uh, mass of the electron and the proton in that, I will start to consider them to be something that we can teach in our science classroom. <laughs> but until they start producing that sort of predictable evidence that we can use in experimentation, I think it sh- we should stay with the idea of non-overlapping magisteria with those two. So um, it is it isn't, but it, that episode was, I think, it just really gets to it and it's really uncomfortable to watch in that sense because it's like you know oh wow we're still dealing with that to this day um here in the states and currently in our state we're about to rewrite our um science standards and you know if we're not careful uh, a lot of the people in charge of our uh education at the state level are uh, shall we say not the most scientifically literate so um maybe pushing very non-scientific ideas and trying to get them pushed into the um there's a big push right now to not even use the word climate because they don't want any reference to climate change, if at all possible. So they don't even want references to the word climate in the state standards, which I'm just like, as someone who teaches earth science and environmental science as well, I've just been like facepalm <laughs> the it's, whole time. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's, abs- it's absurd. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's terrifying actually really. Cause it's like right now, I, I think the greatest you know, physical existential crisis of humanity is is the fact that you know climate won't care if, when it changes. <laughs> it does not care. You can't vote against it um, unless your the vote is about how we deal with en- or energy consumption and or how we deal with waste. And so <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, extinction doesn't care. Like giant rock from space doesn't care. They're just gravity and heat exchange, and you have to like respect that if you're going to survive it. <laughs>
I always think about this in from the point of view of fiction is that like sometimes fiction is a terrible place in which to explore this idea because by its very nature, fiction has a god in the form of the writer. And therefore, the characters in it are being manipulated and given purpose and being, you know, favored by or punished by a divine power in the form of the writer itself. And so I often find that even if you try to, like, portray, like, a purely sort of, like, atheist universe, it's it's a little hard because it's like, you know, you end up being God throwing hardships at Job as the writer, you know, because you're supposed to kill your darlings, <laughs> you know, well, it's, part it's, of, uh, it's, uh, it's fiction as heresy. Yeah, and it's it's such a it's such an interesting quandary to kind of to puzzle out when you think about that. And I was like, oh yeah, how can you really tell a story about like how the universe is a certain way when you yourself are acting as the creator, di- you know, director of the said universe that you are writing in? You know, so so is that it has those issues. We could probably be talking about this all afternoon or morning for you. I mean, we're, we're not in the same time zone at all. We are time traveling. Tell us, Dr. G, where can people find you uh, on the internets if they want to listen to more of your voice and insights? Well, if I haven't completely driven you off and offended you by my uh, crazy rantings about uh, <laughs> secular humanism, uh, you can find me at the Pulped Pixel Podcasts. We have a main site on pulpedpixel.blogspot.com. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. We're on iTunes and Stitcher and I believe Google Play, although I might need to test that feed again. And you can reach us through email, uh, pulptopixel at gmail.com. And if you do come to our site, you can see one of our four podcasts that we currently run. Uh, we started with the Welcome to Astro City podcast, where we are an indexing show where we're looking at Kurt Busick and Brent Anderson and Alex Ross's uh, seminal series, Astro City. Um, we have the Secret Sagas in the Multiverse, where... Um, we really, it's our catch-all episode show where we talk about whatever really we really want to talk about in geek and superhero and comic book culture. Um, mostly we do our TV and movie reviews. Uh, in fact, we should be, we're watching Doctor Strange tomorrow, so we should have a Doctor Strange review coming out. Hopefully, I don't know if it'll be before or after this episode, so there'll be some weird timey-wimey in that. You can also listen to our two or newer minted shows, um, Dial G for Gamer, which Ciscoid was gracious enough to show up on on the second episode, which really helped us out. And we're looking forward to a future episode that we have planned for that. And then um, our other show, uh, Marvel's Secret Wars and Beyond, where I and my uh, my co-host, Dead Robin, um, it's really actually it's his baby. So I like to give him as much credit as possible for these, that show because it's really cool. Uh, where we're talking about Marvel's Secret Wars, the original series, and... Um, just about anything connected to it. So anything that'll bear the Secret Wars title or subtitle or any of the sort of connected episodes. Um, right now we're, um, I should be editing episode four pretty soon here. So we're just into four episodes into that. If you want to talk more about secular humanism or, or just comics in general, that's all the places you can find us. You talk about secular humanism often, do you? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I actually do. I, I mean, I, if the topic comes up, I will, uh, I will do it, but you know, I like to use the more uh, non-secular term. I like to preach whenever possible. So, <laughs> well, as always, I mean, every, ever since, um, uh, ever since we first met online, uh, we've always, as the space hippies say, we reach, 
so it's always great to talk to you about things that we're, we both agree on. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think we have yet to find a major source of disagreement on um, geek culture, but it may yet happen. <laughs> you know, I take that challenge. I, <laughs> I will. I will say something unpopular. Just give me a moment. No, just kidding. No, yeah, no. It's 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 actually been one of the. Uh, I have to say, I've, I've enjoyed a great deal as uh, our conversations online, whether through Twitter or stuff. I think I think the bromance started when we started talking about Asian cinema. So that's right, Asian cinema. Uh, see, so it's uh, yeah. I'm I'm very much a sort of general list with uh, very many many spheres of interest and uh, so are you so I guess it was inevitable that someone would match those interests uh, as well as you have uh, thanks again and uh, for the show we'll uh, take a small break and when we come back we'll do some subspace transmissions Star Trek news and your listener feedback from the last episode all right thanks for having me Greetings listeners, I am Dr. G, the man of nerdology. I host the Pulp to Pixel podcasts. I and my rogues gallery of co-hosts explore the media multiverse of geek culture with such shows as Welcome to Astro City and Secret Sagas of the Multiverse. Now I am proud to announce the newest addition to the Pulp to Pixel podcasts, Dial G for Gamer, a superhero gaming podcast. Dial G for Gamer will be a semi-monthly show where I and my co-hosts play and review games with a superhero theme. From tabletop games to video games, we will take on the genre one superhero game at a time. So if you love superheroes and gaming as much as we do, then tune in to Dial G for Gamer. You can find episodes of Dial G for Gamer with the other Pulp to Pixel podcasts through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. You can follow us on Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Pulp to Pixel, where I go under the name Dr. G Nerdologist. And you can find episodes directly at our blog, pulptopixel.blogspot.com. Right out of a comic book. The Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. Exploring the media multiverse of geek culture. So first, some Star Trek news. We have news about Star Trek Discovery, uh, the show that's supposed to come out in 2017. And uh, some of it is pretty exciting. It's about the casting. Three people have been cast to date. One of these is Doug Jones as Lieutenant Saru... Obviously an alien name, he will be a uh, science officer. And Doug Jones is quite used to uh, makeup effects. Uh, He was Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies, um, which probably is his most famous credit. The show also casts Anthony Rapp as Lieutenant Stamets. I don't know him very well, but I do remember him from Rent. He was also uh, in Law & Order SCU, which is not a show I watch. Uh, he plays a fungus expert, which doesn't really make me excited, tell you the truth. But but the really exciting news is Michelle Yeoh as Captain Georgiou, however you pronounce that. Uh, Michelle Yeoh, super cop, crouching tiger, hidden dragon, one of the greatest martial artists uh, in all of cinema. 
I, I love Michelle Yeoh. Super excited about this. But she's not the captain of the Discovery. She's the captain of the starship Shenshu. So what is this? Is this the cast of the pilot and not necessarily of the show itself? Uh, are they growing the world? Is it like a larger world where the Shenshu might be tracking the Discovery? If the Discovery is perhaps going gone rogue uh, because of that Klingon element? Uh, it's on a secret mission? Is the Shenshu somehow supporting that mission? Opposing that mission? Whatever the case may be. If it's Michelle Yeoh in Star Trek for just a single pilot episode, that's fine by me. If she's in the whole thing... That's even better. If she's part of another ship that, you know, if the, the show does become more of an anthology, if Star Trek becomes an anthology, and we get teased about that ship, and then it goes to series the next year, I'd be over the moon as well. So, Star Trek Discovery making a very interesting choice right here. I'm quite happy with it. Some podcast news. While this was episode 4 of Gimme That Star Trek, there is an episode 3.5, which is actually a uh, Who's Who episode. So if you look on the network, the Fire and Water network, if you're listening to this in early December, you'll find that the uh, latest episode of the Who's Who podcast is Who's Who in Star Trek number 1. In that episode, Rob Kelly, Chris Franklin, and I sit down, open the book, and go through all the entries from A to McCoy. And in a couple weeks, on December the 18th, you can listen to the second episode of that. Who's Who in Star Trek was a two-issue limited series. So we do everything up to the end. And Gene Hendricks, who was on the first episode of Give Me That Star Trek, joins us for that one. That's episodes 3.5 and 4.5 if you need more Star Trek. <laughs> Listener feedback. Well, let's start with some general comments first. Uh, Abel Padilla on Facebook said, Hey, I have a question slash episode request. Remember that DS9 episode where the crew goes back in time to the Tribble story. That's uh, Trials and Tribulations. Has there been any explanation, either in continuity or in extended continuity, about the Klingons of the past? I just remember Worf's disgusted, disdainful look. But I wondered if that bit of Klingon history has been examined yet. It has? Look for it in the fourth season of Enterprise. It's uh, it's actually a couple of episodes that have to do with both that Klingon transformation and Khan's genetically engineered Superman. Somehow those two things are related. You'll see. And we have Paul in KC who asks, uh, Any chance we can get an episode reviewing the graphic novel Debt of Honor by Claremont and Hughes? I've owned it since it was released and it just clicks on all cylinders. Uh, well, uh, Paul, anything's possible. I did review that graphic novel on my blog, Siskoid's Blog of Geekery, uh, during the third year of uh, of the blog, which is seven years ago now. So, you know, there's a search bar. Just put Dead of Honor in there, and uh, you can at least see what my thoughts were at the time. Now let's look at comments about episode three, which was uh, which I called Janeway Air. Uh, I had Art Girl from Ohadmu or Not, Jose, to talk about Jane Eyre and how... Jane Eyre was sort of wrapped into uh, Captain Janeway's holodeck adventures in the first couple seasons. Well, if you haven't had enough of Dr. G yet, here's what he had to say about episode three. Actually, another thing I had to say was um, the last episode, the specifically the format where you, dr- you really only looked at like kind of one or two episodes and had a lot of drop-ins from the episodes were great. I almost feel like if you had done it as like a commentary, like while watching it, 
so that you could play it while the episode was playing in the background. So like you were watching on Netflix and then played the episode and listened to it. So you could have it as like an audio commentary. Might sort of, uh, might tracks. Be, yeah. It might even be an interesting idea as well, but I did like it a lot. I loved how it was like, you know, we talk broad, but that was a nice focused in laser focused in episode. So uh, kudos on that one. I'll send those thoughts on to art girl. Cause she's very, yeah. very insecure about her performance. She refuses to listen to it. She says, "Oh, she was great." Terrible. Oh. Yeah, no, she thinks she's terrible. So, well, tell her I'm a fake doctor on the internet. So tell her as a fake doctor on the internet, I approve of her. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> and that's the other thing too. I think one of the things I've loved in the podcasting realm, especially in the geek podcasting realm, is the voice of women. Something that is desperately needed. I mean, let's face it it's it's a it's a sausage fest in most of our podcasts. Yeah. And and it's like and I feel that's such a disservice because while I enjoy so much everybody's podcasts, I really find episodes that have women on them to yeah. be the most enjoyable because it's like I think it's part of also it breaks the whole like, you know, weird sweaty dudes in their basement mentality of a lot of geek culture. I love the episode on the blog, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Go there for all the comments. Join in the conversation. Chris Franklin of Supermates and uh, Nightcast says, I love so many of the tropes, conventions, and themes in Gothic literature, but I struggle mightily with actually reading them. James's The Turn of the Screw is one of my favorite ghost stories, at least conceptually. It took me forever to get through the novella, and it's only like a 100 pages. Having never seen these or any other episodes of Voyager lucky, uh, and never finished reading Jane Eyre, I can't offer much analysis of the topic. But I really enjoyed the discussion on, on the episode. It's always interesting listening to someone become experienced with a beloved property for the first time, and in this instance, it cut both ways. Jose was unfamiliar with the area of Star Trek, but she had the edge in Jane Eyre knowledge. And I agree, definitely. That conversation made me see things I'd never considered before, and now I think Voyager was even worse than I, than I thought. Oh no! David A. Gutierrez says, great guest and topics, Discord. It's an odd choice that Janeway went from this to hanging out with a holographic Da Vinci. But David, it is more in line with her scientific background, though. He continues, he says, also, Trek played around with ghosts in other interesting ways. There was that time Dr. Crusher was romanced by that ghost alien and she thought she was her own great-grandmother or something. Yes, I was Sub Rosa. It was terrible and I decided to spare Jose that, but it was... Originally, I thought I'd be doing both these concepts together on the same show. But really, it was more of a Wuthering Heights kind of vibe, even though there was a ghost. Anyway, and he also mentions that terrific DS9 episode where the Defiant crew communicates with someone through a storm who ends up being the last survivor of a mission. Or was she? Uh, that was the sound of her voice, and uh, you only discover it's a ghost story at the end. It's like a reverse Jane Eyre. Chris Franklin chimed back in to agree with me that Sub Rosa was often regarded as one of TNG's worst, but he says it's got the Monster Squad's Dracula, Duncan Rager, as the ghost, so I give it points for that. And only that. All right. Gene Hendricks says, well, this episode took two big blind spots for me and combined them. I've never read the book, nor watched any adaptation of Jane Eyre, and I've watched very little Voyager. I might correct the first at some point, but this did nothing to make me want to seek out any more Voyager. Nothing against Siskoid or Jose, they were both great, but all our malfunctions were caused by the comedy relief's inability to cook. Just sounds too typical of a Voyager plot to make me want to sit through it. And then Diablo Frank sort of gives his apologies. He says, I don't like Star Wars enough to regularly listen to a podcast about it. He's referring to, give me that, those Star Wars. 
even if a buddy of mine produces it. I do like Star Trek enough to do that, but not enough to leave comments with any regularity. That's all right. He says, see also the first episodes of the Who's Who podcast I won't be commenting on. Well, for people who like to read your comments, I'm sure they're sorry to hear that. For those who uh, kind of uh, read them in diagonally because they're so long, perhaps it's a mercy. Thanks, Frank. And we got some Facebook likes and shares from Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics Blog, David Foster, Chuck Rodriguez, Gautam Shoran, Ed Moore, Rob Kelly, Chris Franklin, Adam Middleton, Kevin Lauderdale, Shag Matthews, Ryan Daly, who sold the episode like this, says Siskoid and special guest star Art Girl combine everything you love about Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre and some of what you may vaguely remember about Star Trek Voyager on the latest post-Halloween episode of Giving That Star Trek. Well said. More likes and shares from Gene Hendricks, David Ace Gutierrez, Max Romero, Sagrinius, Mike Peacock, Jason Pope, Jack Dower, Abel Padilla, and Gord Tolton. While on Google+, Plus, we got pluses from The Hammer Strikes, and on Twitter, retweets and favorites from Coffee and Comics Blog, Rolled Spine Podcast, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology, Longbox Crusade, Trek Comics, Trek Bot, Ryan Daly, Comic Reflections, Justice's First Dawn, Between the Pages, Chuck Rodriguez, The Hammer Strikes, Tutor Freaks, Yes Ma'am, Warlord Worlds, Greg A., and Codeman. Thank you all. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you leave uh, as many or more comments on it. Tell us what you thought of our discussion and what you think generally of Star Trek's philosophy. Do you follow it? Which bits are your favorites? We'll be back in about a month with another topic. Until then, go boldly. There's this this stupid button on my um, headset. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, I just lean back on it or something and it, it mutes me. It's trying to suppress your voice. <laughs> Censorship. Censorship. <laughs>